morning, church. My name is Matthew Muller. I have been attending Reality for about a year, and I serve as an ally on the Benevolence team. Uh, today's text is from John 1, 1 through 4, Genesis 1, 3 and 4, and John 15, 4. Please follow along as I read the passage aloud for us. This is John 1, 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Genesis 1, 3, and 4. Now the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God said that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. John 15, 4. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is God's word. Good morning, Reality San Francisco. When I first came to the city, I called it San Fran. Uh, and everybody looked at me as if I'd probably, you know, did something pretty terrible. And I was like, oh. I said, no, it's SF or the city. <laughs> so hello, reality, San Francisco. Hello. Um, <laughs> uh, we just come fresh off a really deep week or three or four days, actually, with this group called the Sea Rock, which is a bunch of pastors. Some of you might have heard of it. And... You know, I think I've been really filled with the pastoral heart of a new wave of appreciation for the Word of God and the authority of the Word of God, but also the orthodoxy, like a neo-orthodoxy in the American church, which I have been so encouraged by. I'm not American. I'm Australian originally from Sydney, (laughs) Um, but I live in the UK in Oxford. And so actually in my message today, you're going to see those realities kind of weaved through in what I'm going to talk about when it comes to scripture. How should we approach scripture? But you might be here this morning thinking, you might be someone who's never really cared about scripture or never really read scripture, right? So you might have read it your whole life every day. And I want to cater for all of those realities. I want to speak into that. And you might be asking the question, is this scripture really good? Like, is it actually trustworthy? Does this really lead me to God? That might be your question this morning. I think we've all wrestled with that question, even if we've rejected the Bible and think like, no, it's actually not good. <laughs> or we've embraced it. We still are asking that question. It's always a live question for us. And for me, in that wrestle of being a gay man, at the young age of 14 when I came out and then becoming a Christian, I did not trust this word. I struggled to trust this word because in a very direct way, I thought that it condemned me or disqualified me from the life of faith. And so I wanna take us on a little bit of a journey, like not just how did I come to trust the Bible or the word of God, but also how did the church come to trust the Bible and the word of God and see that it really is a good word And that in this word is a mixture of things that make very little sense when you first read it. (laughs) 
and things that are really clear, crystal clear and beautiful and kind of satiate a desire in us for truth. And it's both mixed together. And I'm going to talk about that uh, in our time together. But in Psalm 119, which is the longest psalm in the whole of, of, of the book of Psalms, the central preoccupation of that whole psalm, it's really huge. The verses keep going on and on and on, and it's based on every uh, character of the alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet, and it's a meditation on the word of God directly, or the precepts or instruction of the Lord. And right in the center of this psalm is this idea, it says, your word is a lamp unto my feet. And what the psalmist is saying is basically, we're all lost, we're all kind of stuck in ourselves, and we're looking for a way home. We're looking for the way where, the, the place we can rest the full weight of our loves and say, oh, I'm finally at home. But we keep constantly trying to make other things our home and try to inhabit them. And this breaks us at the core and increases our pain and our anguish. And I think the word of God is this lamp onto our feet that can take us to home, which is our Father in heaven. And we can foretaste and experience his presence in this good word, in these scriptures. So the scriptures are the place of encounter, formation, and correction for the self in God. While the scriptures are not a sacrament themselves, they point to the ultimate mediator, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus took on a human flesh. But he didn't just take on a human flesh when he, the word became incarnate, as we read in John 1. I think he also took on a textual flesh. And so what does that mean? Jesus, the word before all time, allowed the scriptures to be written and inspired and God-breathed as a very human but very divinely inspired text so that it could be the space of encounter between us and God. It could read it into the grit of our humanity, but also lift us in to the Trinitarian and divine reality of who God is. Isn't that beautiful? So Jesus takes this story, this text, this library of texts and makes them his word and has inspired them throughout history to lead us home. And so in Augustine says on, in, on Christian teaching, when we speak, the word which we hold in our mind becomes a sound in order that we have in our, what we have in our mind may pass through ears of flesh into the listener's mind. This is called speech. And then he says, in the same way, the word of God became flesh in order to live in us, but was unchanged. So the word of God, Jesus Christ, the logos of God, second person of the Trinity, communicates through this textual flesh, through this word, in human language, in space and time and in history, as an unraveling mystery. He does this and he it comes into the mutable, like changeable human situation and speaks with human language, divine realities that are beyond our conception, like beyond our understanding. Like you read the prophets or the Psalms or any text of the Bible and you see how these impossible things to describe somehow become described in human finite language. 
like the eyes, the wheels within wheels, like these metaphors that can contain the divine mystery and speak it to us. And I think this is just such an amazing thing that scripture can do this in a way that I think no other text in history has been able to do. It is specially inspired and it is the ultimate authority for knowing who God is. But that was really something that I, as a young atheist, gay activist, could access. That all felt way, like very far from me. And the way that I came to understand scripture latently in the culture was in a postmodernist way. And postmodernism is a reaction to modernist bad ways of understanding scripture. And we live in a post-postmodern time where to a large degree the idea of authority, particularly the authority of a text like the Holy Bible, has been undermined, questioned, and reappraised. In the last century, Friedrich Nietzsche declared that God was dead. And many de decades later, Roland Barthes, a French postmodernist, declared that the author was dead. Like we couldn't even get back to the original meaning of the text. It was beyond us. And yet there I was as this postmodernist, this young communication student in Sydney, Australia. And I found that actually there was a way back to the text. There was a way back to real meaning, real truth. There was a way home for me. And it was through the Holy Spirit that I came to trust scripture. And I'm gonna share that experience later, which is quite hilarious. But the problem is that there are bad modernist views of the Bible, which actually come from a very low view of the Bible. <laughs> that this word that's become a textual flesh, this word is both divinely inspired and human. And so we get this like progressive reaction that tries to undermine the divine inspiration of the text, but we also get this fundamentalist reaction, which is uncomfortable with the humanity of the text. And it's like, why are there two different numbers of chariots describing the same event in the Old Testament and the numbers are different? And does that mean that now we can't trust this word because one little factual element is different? And well, no, it's a human text. Like no one experiences reality exactly the same way. That's why you have four gospels. Truth cannot be communicated in a tiny factoid. Like everything is always moving. People say, so you're saying it's not historically reliable. It's not historically reliable. It's just within human terms. Those, the numbers of those chariots still show you that there was this massive war and there was a historical reality to that text. And so I think we've, we have a ridiculous kind of understanding of historicity in the modernist lens, and it undermines either the divine inspiration or the humanity of the text. And we need to hold those two in tension and let the text be human. Let it be something that obfuscates and is hard to understand, and yet always see that it is divinely inspired and that God is waiting in the pages to meet us. And so Kierkegaard, he faced this problem back. Soren Kierkegaard, he's the first existentialist. And he lived in a kind of liberal-leaning society that was nominally Christian. So probably a lot like America today. I believe in Jesus, but when it comes to the word of God, meh, don't need it. I'm fine, and that might be you this morning. Well, I, I don't need this word. I've got Jesus. 
but you're rejecting Jesus's textual flesh. You're rejecting how he came into history and dwelt among us and the actual interface so you can know him. And so you, you, you're actually undermining Jesus's authority to speak to you <laughs> if you don't trust this word. But that's the kind of society he was living in. People were doing all sorts of idolatrous things and undermining the Bible as the ultimate authority for faith. And so he says, the matter is quite simple. The Bible is very easy to understand. And I put a little asterisk here and sometimes not. But we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. I confess. <laughs> we pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. Take any words in the New Testament and forget everything except pledging yourself to act accordingly. And he goes on about how biblical scholarship was invented basically to undermine very clear texts that tell us how to live and challenge us in discipleship. And he's wanting to regain the authority and the power of God to actually transform society. Because I'm telling you, when you let the scriptures go free, when you read them in this deeper sacramental way, it's like a lion roars through the text. It's like a power is poured out to radically transform us to look more and more like Jesus, more and more like the life he lived. And it's just incredible. And that's happened in my life as I've gone deeper. But I had to get beyond those ideological reductions of what the Bible meant and get to that deeper life where I read the word with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus corrects that fundamentalism that was in his own day. The Jews believed that God's presence dwelt in the text. They believed that the Torah was what carried the presence of God on earth. And they'd gone through exile where they had no temple. So suddenly the scriptures became what was like their mini temple. And so they would put the text in their hair and like sew it into their clothes and there's like a kind of beautiful devotion to that, but there's also maybe a slight like idolatry of the text. We have to be so careful that we don't make the text God, but that the text is divinely inspired and human together. And so Jesus says, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. So we have to be so careful that the scriptures do not become the God we seek themselves, but actually the way into the divine Trinitarian life. And Origen describes this kind of mystical relationship with scripture that's not just interpretive, but participatory. He says, the scriptures breathe the spirit of fullness and there is nothing, whether in the law or in the prophets, in the evangelists or in the apostles, which does not descend from the fullness of the divine majesty. Even at the present time, the words of fullness speak in the holy scriptures to those who have eyes to see the mysteries of heaven and ears to hear the voice of God. We have to have eyes to see and ears to hear. And this is how I think scripture needs to be interpreted. Basically, scripture is encountered in three main ways. The plain historical sense. So this is like, Jesus died at Golgotha on the hill. Okay, great, thank you. 
yes, Jesus died there. <laughs> we know that there's a historicity to this text within its genre, right? It's trying to tell us something historical happened. But then we go down to the typological sense and we're like, it's on a hill in Golgotha. We think back to the Old Testament. We think the law was given on Mount Sinai. Here on, on, on the mountain, the law was fulfilled. We start to see this typological relationship between why God purposed it to be on that mount, in that place. And we typologically read the text and then see the spiritual or prophetic sense in which the text can then be applied to the devout soul. So, oh wow, it's Golgotha, Jesus died for our sins. Like this is the place of the skull. This is Jesus incarnationally entering into death itself and overcoming it forever. And we see that prophetic reality in just one tiny piece of scripture. And when you, you layer the three on top of each other, it's delectable. It's delicious. It's like, let's get our Uber Eats out and like order some Peruvian. <laughs> Maybe in a Mexican today, you know, like a little bit of lamentations, <laughs> a little bit of mac and cheese, you know, American barbecue, okay, high Ephesians. You know, and it's like this beautiful smorgasbord that God has laid for us to eat and feast and know him. And I remember being at Bible college, like after all of this story of being this gay activist and I had time to worship and be in the spirit and start to read the text deeply, not in this kind of superficial, modernist, informational way, but patiently and worshipfully. And I would wake up every day and I'd go to worship and I'd see the Bible and I would start to salivate. I start to like, actually my facial glands were like, yeah, salivation glands were like, yes, the Bible. Oh, I can't wait to just dig in deep and find all the senses of the text and all the ways God is speaking to me and to the church and to the world. And I want to stir that up in you this morning, that sense of hunger for the word, because everything in this world is shouting and yelling, don't trust it, don't read it. <laughs> don't, 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 don't. Because this world is ruled by another who is not Jesus Christ. And so we have to press in, we have to sow to the spirit and get to that deeper place. And then we can feed the world. We can feed others and show them the way into the depth and beauty of the text. And we can eat the scroll and it can become honey on our lips that like sparks witness, that breaks down all the hatred and all the ways in which we're divided from each other. We can also eat the scroll and it can be a bit bitter sometimes because God's got some work to do. <laughs> um, anyone in the room? <laughs> Keeps happening. So this is what Origen says, who has this fascinating kind of mystical way, sacramental way of reading the Bible back in the fourth century. These church fathers give us such richness in how to read the Bible and help us to get to kind of guide our reading. And I think it's really important that we listen to them as they wrestled with all the same questions that we're wrestling with when it comes to scripture. And he says, then finally, the scriptures were written by the spirit of God and have a meaning, not such only as is apparent at first sight, but also another, which escapes the notice of most. For those words which are written are the forms of certain mysteries and the images of divine things. 
respecting which there is one opinion throughout the whole church that the whole law is indeed spiritual, but that the spiritual meaning which the law conveys is not known to all, but to those only on whom the grace of the Holy Spirit is bestowed in the word of wisdom and knowledge. In other words, reading scripture must be a relational activity. It has to be something we also do with the Holy Spirit. It's not enough to just remain on that historical plain reading level. Now, I am a theologian at Oxford and in the center of town, we have this place called the Martyr's Cross, the Martyr's Memorial. And it's the place where Thomas Cramner and Latimer and Ridley, these English reformers, they, they said no to the powers, the principalities of the time. They said, no, we believe scripture is the ultimate authority in our life and faith. And they were burnt at the stake for this Bible that I'm holding in my hands, that you today could read that text. People have sacrificed their very lives that it could be in your hands that there's an echo of the church's voice throughout thousands of years that also comes through these pages and speaks. And so what, what um, Thomas Cramner kind of talked about is that human beings, basically what their heart, hearts love, their wills choose, and their minds justify. And scripture has a power to get beyond just the mind and the will and to go right to the base of the heart. And Dave Lomas has talked about how it's a double-edged sword last week in Hebrews that pierces right to the heart. And it wasn't for me until, it wasn't until for me as a gay man, the scriptures pierced to my heart and went in that deeper typological prophetic sense actually got into my heart that I was able to accept the teaching of scripture and to say you know what default I'm going to be celibate (laughs) until I find out what God's will is and fully like I'm going to trust this word and so this had to be something that was spiritually imparted to me not just informationally read off the text and what's so amazing today is the very scriptures I thought condemned me are the scriptures that spell my inclusion into the covenant of God in Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6, 9. And you're going to have to come to the sessions to hear how because it's a little spicy motivation there to come so we can wrestle with scriptures. And um, Origen says, those who believe the author of nature to also be the author of scripture must expect to find in scripture the same sorts of difficulties that they find in nature. I love this. So, you know, you speak to any scientist who's studying nature and like, there are so many difficulties. I do not understand this world. It is a crazy mystery. I was speaking to a physicist at Oxford and he was saying to me, David, physics has broken maths. Maths shouldn't work. Like we describe these physical processes on a subatomic level that shouldn't be able to happen mathematically and yet we can describe them in mathematical terms. My brain exploded. (laughs) I'm like, that sounds really difficult. I don't really understand. (laughs) But he's like, David, it's really crazy. I'm like, okay. And then they just found out that there is no such thing as nothing like ouch and they're like it's quantum foam 
quantum foam. I'm like, what, what's quantum foam? It's like, it's a nothing that's something. I'm like, uh-huh, great. <laughs> so, you know, if the scientists are struggling at Oxford, maybe we're going to struggle also a little bit with scripture. Maybe we're all going to, you know, not necessarily get there overnight, if ever. <laughs> There's going to be mysteries we bump up against. It's just like, we have to be humble in the face of it. So I love that. Like when I'm speaking to scientists, it's the same as speaking to a theologian. People come to me like, what do you think scripture says this for? And I'm like, hmm, I have no idea right now. But let me pray and let me worship and let me be theologically patient with the text. And suddenly, boom, something new pops up. And the unraveling, the, un, the never-ending revealing process of God's truth and goodness comes to bear here and now. And I love that about scripture. You can ask all your questions. You'll never get the full answer, but you will get a substance. It will pop up. It will come. If you are patient and humble, it will come. And this is what Augustine says in On Christian Teaching. For those who seek but do not suffer from hunger, those, again, who do not seek at all because they have what they require just beside them often grow languid from satiety. Now, weakness from either of these causes is to be avoided. Accordingly, the Holy Spirit has, with admirable wisdom and care for our welfare, so arranged the Holy Scriptures as by the plainer passages to satisfy our hunger and by the more obscure to stimulate our appetite. For almost nothing is dug out of those obscure passages which may not be found set forth in the plainest language elsewhere." After this, when we have made ourselves to a certain extent familiar with the language of Scripture, we may proceed to open up and investigate the obscure passages, and in doing so, draw examples from the plainer expressions to throw light upon the more obscure and use the evidence of passages about which there is no doubt to remove all hesitation in regard to the doubtful passages. I love this. It's like... There are scriptures, as Kierkegaard said, that are clear and that we must submit to them and learn to live in authority to them. But they help us then with the more mysterious or difficult passages, which are less clear. And eventually it all leads to a sense of both humility, but confidence in who God is. And I think that's such a good way to read scripture, to expect that there will be obscure passages that don't make a lot of sense initially. But if you're patient, eventually, as it joins together in a rich tapestry, it will just shine and it will become precious and you will feel the tingling on the tongue and the <laughs> desire to eat the scroll, to know Jesus through this word. So if we undermine scripture as our personal authority, we cannot, one, know God's will and the right pathway, Augustine's idea of finding the true pilgrim road among all these other roads that are tugging at us. It's the way home. Scripture is the way home. It helps us discern between false and true ways of knowing God. And two, it saves us from the deception in the human heart and the deception in our minds, which keep us from knowing the love of God and the obedience which comes from seeking and knowing how God, good God really is. So it's a protection from deception and it's the way home. As we are patient with this text, it leads us home to God, to our heavenly father. 
So the scripture's human weakness, like Jesus's own human nature, is the key to their divine infallibility, strength, and trustworthiness for our whole lives. This textual flesh of Jesus, the human text, has been drawn together by the Spirit to testify to him and to guide us toward a life of holy and true love, patterned in God's own nature as loving communion between three persons. This is such a beautiful vision, but as I said, for me as a gay man struggling in the postmodern university I was in, I, I was so far from this truth. I was so far from the beauty of the word. And I was saved, freshly saved one night from, in a pub in the gay quarter of Sydney and I went home my mother told me all these crazy things which you can read about in my book and that this prophecy had been fulfilled that I was going to be saved in three months' time and it was exactly three months. And I go up to my bed, like completely bowled over by the love of God, but with a, the mind of a gay atheist. And I sit down like on my bed and collapse into sleep. And as I'm sleeping, I feel this washing sensation. Like washing me, and I'm like, oh, that's nice, wow. Mm, that's, uh, yeah, wow, Jesus, hi. You know, like kind of in that in-between <laughs> space of sleep and being awake. <laughs> and, and then as this washing sensation gets like stronger and stronger, and it says, I think in Ephesians, that the word washes us clean. And Jesus talks about in John, like this word has made you clean. The word was making me clean, and I haven't re hadn't really even read it yet. And so I start to, as the, the washing sensation gets stronger, start to speak in heavenly languages in the middle of my sleep. And as I rationally come to and realize what is happening, I yell out, I'm part of a cult! <laughs> Help! Help! And my mother in her little nightie with her very, like, marked and, like, old Bible that she'd underlined and highlighted. Dirty Bible, clean Christian, right? <laughs> she comes in and she's like, David, what's happened? And she's like ready to show me in the word, like, huh, you know? Because <laughs> she's just been reading it in the way I've discussed it with you. She's ready to pounce, to show me where it really is in the word. And so she says, oh yeah, that heavenly language. Oh, well, you know, the water that was flowing through you, well, that's in John and here it is. And I was like, wow, I kind of like that. And then she's like, but then the, the, the heavenly language, that's in like, you know, 1 Corinthians 12, just here. And I'm like, is that Paul? Did he write that? He's like, I was like, yeah. I was like, I hate Paul. <laughs> I took the Bible and threw it against the wall. <laughs> and I was like, I'm happy with God and I'm happy with the waters and I'm happy with all of this, but not Paul, never. And that might be you this morning. You're like, I'm not sure, David. Like, good for you, but I'm not there. And all I want to encourage you towards is like, I got there in the end. As I patiently and lovingly held on to Jesus, he showed me how good the scriptural word was and why it needed to be the ultimate authority for my life. And I, I was at a conference in Australia and this man called Don Carson, who to me was like my cultural enemy. He was a white, cisgender, heterosexual male who was like hyper-reformed conservative. And I was like, ew, no, I do not want to listen to you. <laughs> like, 
And he gave the most beautiful sermon about why we need to live not over the word or just over the word, but also under it. And you this morning might be in that space where you're like, I'm happy to live over it and like intellectually pull it apart and deconstruct and do all the things that we're encouraged to do by our culture, but I'm not willing to live under it. And maybe there's some pain. Maybe there's a sense of rejection. Maybe there's all sorts of ways the Bible's been abused in your life that you need to say, that's actually an abuse of the text, not the text itself. And you need to come in under it and say, Jesus, I'm gonna trust you in it. I'm not gonna accept it full. I'm not ready yet, but I'm willing to actually live under it and see that it really is a good word, that it really will lead to my flourishing, that it really will lead me to the richest spirituality possible. And I'm telling you, at least from my vantage point, like from my witness, it has been that word. Even as a gay man, and I live celibately, I live giving my sexuality to Jesus, like we're all called to do. And until it's given back to me in some other form, it's his. And it's such freedom. There's such joy. It's not a repressive celibacy. It's like an erotic passion-filled love for my Lord. And erotic, I don't mean sexual. I mean a much broader definition of passion and desire. And I found that through this word and it has brought me such flourishing. And when I was living in that postmodernist, hypermodernist view of scripture, I was languishing, I was dying. I didn't know my way home. And if you don't know your way home, this word is your way home. And so I want to invite you this morning to come home to Jesus. You might have read it all your life, but it's remained dry and dead. You might have never read it, but you want to get to know it. Come home to Jesus. Come home to God. This word will show you the way. It will be the lamp onto your feet. In Psalm 33, 4, it says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. And then in Psalm 107, 20, it says, he sent out his word and healed them. He rescued them from the grave. Yes, there is physical death, but there's spiritual death as well. There is a spiritual grave and you might be in that grave and you might be like, I'm so done with that deathliness. And you know, you feel it on the streets. You see people lost. You see yourself lost. And you're like, I want life. I want healing. I want out of that grave. Come to Jesus. Come to this word and receive life this morning. And so the solution to this heart that is deceived and turned in all the wrong ways, the solution is a sacramental incarnational view of scripture, which saves us from the wanton desires at our heart and mind, which seek to resist God, his love, his will, and his ways. Instead, scripture shines the light into the darkness of our lives and world and shows us the way home to our father in heaven. If we want our humanity to be a dwelling place for God and for our hearts to be set on the right pathway in Christ to our heavenly home in the new earth, the scriptures must be our ultimate authority. If we want to know our identity as beloved sons and daughters of God, which scripture says we are, 
we must grasp onto, be anchored in, formed by, nourished by the scriptures as the written and preached word through which the ultimate big W, word of God, Jesus Christ, can sanctify, defend, indwell, and free us. The scriptures must become the lamp onto our feet, which lead us on our way home. I'm just going to pray us into that. Father God, thank you so much for this word, your scriptures breathed out through your son who became human, but was very God. Thank you that your word is very human and very divinely inspired. Let us live in the tension and the wrestle and let us live in the certainty of what the word says. Let it become the place we go first, above human opinion, above every other voice in this world. Let your voice, Lord, be the voice that speaks in your scriptures. And Lord, where we're afraid of this word, reassure us that it is good and that it leads us to true human flourishing, Lord. And where we have rebelled against this word, help us to come again and see it and live under it and experience the joy of the freedom it will bring us. And Lord, where there are people today that have never known you and never known the goodness of your word and are thinking, gosh, I don't even know if I want part of that. Lord, I pray you would touch them this morning. You would invite them deeper. You would show them your goodness and lead them in. And so if you fit into any of these categories this morning in the worship, let's just take the time to come afresh to God's word in scripture and encounter him in a sacramental way I've described. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys.